0: And welcome to Big Episode 48 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast in the entire galaxy that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. I'm your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Maxine Philavon, Hello. Julie Bartuka.
1: What's up? Ken Best. We are all here.
0: We're coming to you from the beautiful Lakeside building in Storrs, Connecticut, and we've got a humdinger of a show for you this week. You're
2: overusing that one, Tom.
0: Am I using, I'm overusing humdinger? I think so. All right. I think well, you've
2: gone to the humdinger well quite a few t- times lately. You
0: know what? Listener poll: If you think I've said Humdinger too often, tell us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. Maxine,
2: make a Twitter poll. I will.
0: <laughs> so Humdinger or not, it's going to be a good show, good episode. How's everyone doing?
2: I'm tired. It's too late in the day to do this.
0: Mm, how was Thanksgiving?
2: <laughs> it was great.
0: Yeah. We're almost at the end of the semester. This is our last week of classes. Maxine, are you are you ready for the semester to be over?
2: I'm ready for, for it to be over. Um, had like two mental breakdowns this week. Already. Right. No. So ready to go. Are you well rested after your break? No. No. That's a whole break to do all of my work did not do any of it <laughs> stayed up all night last night doing all of my work um and then my file got deleted this morning oh so, save often i'll never learn oh. that lesson though so yeah my the worst thing happened to me this morning my computer crashed blue screen of death oh. turned back on the file was corrupted oh it wasn't even on my computer Oh. So I have to do it all again. Aren't it? you glad you're here? Is this making your day better? Big like idea, a lot. Or is it just making you more stressed about how much you have to do when you leave? Big <laughs> idea, like a is lot better. Like, yeah, this Poor is like a, a meditative
0: environment. This is a calming place. This is
2: calming. I feel very calm.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear about that. That
2: stinks. I hope the end of the semester goes better. Yeah, we'll you. see. <laughs> One week left. <laughs>
0: um. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, also, listeners, uh, while you're taking our poll, you know, thoughts for Maxine. And uh, and her paper.
2: Paris Go fund Paris me. Maxine. We can start a. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think we can. Actually, legally, I don't think we can. No, we can't
2: solicit money.
0: Let's jump into the Husky headlines, Let's though. We can it. do that. That's something we're allowed to do. I
2: have good news for Maxine, actually. Right. Great. Once you graduate from UConn, Maxine, you have a very good chance of succeeding in the real world. Yep. There is new data out uh, from the Center for Career Development here at UConn that says nine out of every 10 2019 UConn grads has reported that they had either a job or in a postgrad academic program or were in either the military or a volunteer service of their choosing within six months of graduation. So they surveyed members of the class of 2019 according to methodology based on national standards, and they found out that you're going to do okay. The survey also indicated that UConn supports a talent pipeline for the state of Connecticut. 68% of alumni who landed jobs in the state lived here before they came to UConn, and then 26% of those who came to UConn from other states ended up staying here for post-grad jobs. That's good news. Yeah. If anyone wants to hire me, I graduated (laughs) That's right. Find my resume online.
1: (laughs) Ken, you have good news too. This, is, this oh, is a good news episode. We have a good news episode. Our Vice President for Research, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship, Radenka Merrick, has received a very important honor. She's been named a 2019 Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is the publisher of the journal Science, the world's largest general scientific society, founded in 1848, and has more than 250 affiliated societies of, and academies of science. It is a big deal. The organization goes back to 1874. And among those distinguished honored scientists up until now, Thomas Edison, the man who invented the light bulb. No slouch. And Linus Pauling, the chemist, among others. Four Nobel laureates from last year. Wow. i a member of that organization. So, uh, Professor America has been honored for distinguished contributions to the field of nanocatalysis for clean energy, particularly for pioneering novel materials and synthesis approaches to achieve and optimize electrochemical interface. That's high-level stuff. Mm-hmm. She holds the rank of Connecticut Clean Energy Fund Professor of Sustainable Energy in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering in the Department of Material Sciences and Engineering. And she's received more than $40 million in research funding, six patents, and 11 published patent disclosures, 300 articles. She Whoa. produces a lot of good stuff.
2: Mm-hmm. Prolific.
0: She's definitely a superstar, and it is a big deal to get in the AAAS.
2: Yes, it is. Look at you, Insider.
0: Yeah, that's my little science lingo. <laughs> you know, uh, you know what else is a big deal here what? on campus? Basketball. Yeah, everyone here likes basketball. Mm-hmm. We've covered some basketball stories. Julie had a recent feature. On this a-
2: one's like a big deal, though.
0: We have a very big deal that can. Is going to tell us about I
1: think most fans of the Huskies know that men's basketball coach Dan Hurley has established a reputation as a coach who can rebuild struggling programs and return them to winning ways. As a member of one of the nation's best-known basketball families, uh, Dan Hurley grew up with the game in New Jersey. His father, Bob Sr., is a legendary Hall of Fame coach who got at the powerhouse St. Anthony's High School team in New Jersey to 26 state championships in 39 years. He's only the 10th high school coach to win 1,000 games. His older brother, Bobby, was an All-American and two-time national champion player at Duke, who played for five years in the NBA and is now the head coach at Arizona State. After he was an assistant to Dan at Wagner in Rhode Island, we haven't talked with Coach Hurley up until a couple of weeks ago. After a practice session at the Worth Family Basketball Champion Center, just before the season began, I spoke to him as he prepared for his second season with the Huskies. A conversation I described to him as a couple of guys from Jersey talking hoops, and he appreciated that. When you first come in and think about what needs to be done, what's your process?
3: There's definitely a, a bunch of different components to it. You know, while you consider considering taking a, a job, um, you know, to lead another program, the first thing that's probably run through your mind is staff makeup. Before you even take it, it's can I put together a staff at that particular place that's going to allow me to be successful? The next thing is uh, evaluating. The talent and people in and around the program, the players with eligibility, you know, the the people that work in academic support, the people that work in marketing, how many assets or quality people can I get more out of? So identifying the people that were part of a struggling program that have potential to be part of the solution, you're trying to identify that and developing relationships with those people. Can I hire the type of staff I want? What what people that uh, were part of this struggling organization uh, can I get more out of? And then you immediately start to uh, develop a relationship and build some trust with the families uh, you know, around the current players that you want to return and get to know those players and develop a relationship. And then yeah, obviously it, you're looking at other things too, like are the facilities up to par? Uh, Are we marketing the program uh, correctly? Are we making the gains in in strength and conditioning? Do we need to change that facility? Is it good enough to get what we want out of it? Finally, you get to recruiting, infusing the type of talent you need to at a place like this.
1: Although it's it's, it's not unique, but it's unusual, I I think, that... You spent a lot of time as a high school coach, which not necessarily all college coaches have done. How has that helped you from having been on the receiving end of yeah. recruiting and, and understanding it from, from yeah. that perspective?
3: The time at St. Benedict's coached high-level players, but it just gave me a perspective on recruiting. I got a chance to see kind of what worked and what didn't work, which programs were successful with how they approached it, recruiting and why it just gave me a really a an in-depth you know, look into the thought process behind High school age players and their mentors, and why they made the choices they made with the next destination in terms of the recruiting. And then for me, it just taught me I don't have bad habits as a coach because I, I never did it to make a lot of money. I coached at the high school level because I love being a coach, I love having an impact on kids' lives. So for me, like I haven't gotten away from those values, uh, even though my career trajectory has changed since high school. I still do this job with the heart and mind of uh, high school coach
1: and looking at the the games last year you had eight games with uh losses that were eight points or less which means the kids were competitive and you were coaching hard and, and everybody was moving towards the goal what did you learn from from last year and as the season progressed that's prepared you for this year
3: it was a typical year one for me. I've been through this two other times in college where it's like you have to find joy or encouragement in like the small wins, and small wins are being competitive, playing really, really good teams where we're incredibly undermanned. Playing Houston at the XL Center last year and, you know, we're, we're beat up with injuries, yet, you know, we find ourselves, you know, battling back and giving ourselves a chance to be competitive late in the game. So you just look... Look at the the work ethic changing, the competitiveness changing, the team becoming tougher-minded, more well-connected. Those are the things you're looking for in years one and two until the the talent gap is uh, shortened and and we have more of the type of roster that you would expect here. This year,
1: the biggest uh, missing piece was was Jalen Adams from last year. A lot of scoring has left, but you're still returning a lot of talented players who Mm. have now become the embodiment of your philosophy on the court. Yes. Who are you looking to for leadership this year? Because that's always a a big issue. And who do you think has potential to keep that going as as, as they move on?
3: You missed Jalen. Jalen was... uh tremendous player uh gifted player and um you know it's tough in a transition year you don't get a lot of the leadership in terms of the players because it's uh that year one they don't really understand what the standard is and the expectations that i have and and it's just it's hard when you when you've known each other for such a short amount of time for to get that that full buy-in now that we've spent so much time together altery christian obviously need tremendous leadership from them. They need to really be the heartbeat of the team. And then, you know, we need a lot out of the junior class. Um, I've harped on it uh, internally, you know, and, and externally with the media. Um, the need for Josh Carlton and Tyler Polly and, and Sid Wilson and Isaiah Whaley as juniors to step out of the shadows now and step to the forefront and and really be accountable and understand it's, that it's their time uh, at UConn to step forward, They're upperclassmen. And they have a lot of experience. We returned seven guys that played minutes for us last year. That, that's a lot of experience. We expect to, um, you know, to, to play like a veteran team. Obviously, we've got to integrate uh, some some young talent, but we've got some older players that should step up.
1: The familiarity with the league from last year, because you were in it for the first time, certainly is going to give you some more insight. Uh, preparing, how is that? going to be for you now compared to last year when you came in and you literally didn't know
3: most of the teams. Easier for me. So much easier in terms of even little things like planning out the travel of when you want to fly out and when you want to arrive and things to look for with certain coaches and the little wrinkles that they like to throw into games at both ends of the court. Their system, their style. But I would say overall just you know, knowing how this league plays how it's officiated and uh, understanding a lot more of the tendencies uh, that particular coaches uh, on both ends of court will help.
1: I have to ask because uh, I think it's a thing that, that a lot of UConn fans and alumni are always interested in is when you go into New York to the garden for the Jimmy V Classic, when a player goes in there for the first time, well, what do they feel like and uh, what Ooh. did you feel like the first time you went in there?
3: just a ton of electricity and energy and a lot of looking around you know a lot of you know when you when you take the cargo elevator up it's a unique thing when you walk down the hallway and you see you know the pictures of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier and Billy Joel and Elton John and Willis Reed and if you're a historian and you love sports and you have an appreciation for I guess entertainment and history and it's just walking ra- around your head's on a swivel and you take your first couple shots in the pre-game warm-up it's just like everything is kind of surreal it's a special noise it's a special buzz in there I remember playing Indiana there when I was at Seton Hall and going in and layup lines in the pregame and seeing Bobby Knight on the sideline and just saying man I can't believe it I'm playing Indiana at the Garden with Bobby Knight over there so it's crazy yeah welcome to Madison Square Garden the world's most famous arena yeah John
1: Condon saying it
3: too. yeah it's like come on you get chills and you know last year obviously it went my way night one you know Syracuse that uh, was fun You know, one day, what is that, one day a a peacock, the next day a feather duster or whatever. You know, next day got thrown out of the Iowa game. And then we played Villanova there before Christmas. I think we're up two or three going into the under-16 media timeout, second half, kind of walking around saying, hey, this job's not that hard. And then the ship kind of... Hit the hit the iceberg there. (laughs) Before you knew it, you know Villanova put a 21-1 run on us. So yeah, I mean it was uh, exhilarating. I can't wait to go back there. You know we have the type of team that uh, that'll represent UConn even better.
1: Coach Hurley is very intense, as I think we know when we watch him. But when he you talk with him, he's like Coach Calhoun and Coach Oriemma are when you get them individually—really uh, down to earth guys. He's
2: my favorite with his sound bites. Did you guys see the video yesterday where he said the atmosphere needs to be litty? Yeah, <laughs> in Gamble, yeah. I it? loved it so yeah. much.
0: Yeah, it does. It does need to be it litty. Needs to
2: be litty. I didn't know that was a thing. I know lit. It's, no, it's, it's, it is. It's a song. I looked it up. Is it? It is. Wow. Meek Mill, right? Do kids yeah. say lit? Litty, maxine uh ironically <laughs> okay all right well, that's still i think hurley was saying it a little ironically but it was very cute
1: and uh as you are hearing this uh we don't know the results of last night's game at madison square garden the world's most famous arena that we talked about during the interview so hopefully we've gotten the same result go huskies julie
2: yeah
0: that, since UConn 360 does cover the University of Connecticut from every conceivable every angle.
2: So we're going from something that's super well-known to something that's probably not very well-known but should be because it's awesome. I'm going to take you inside a very cool place on campus. The Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Biodiversity Research Collections in the Biophysics Building contain hundreds of thousands of specimens representing about 22,000 different species. I got to go on a very fun tour with Jane O'Donnell, who has been the manager of the Insect, Parasites, and The new ant guest collection which is confusing but there are bugs that live with ants basically for 39 and a half years and she retires january 1st and we talked all about what goes on there
4: this is our dry story Of, like, the vault in Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you remember that old movie Uh where they wheel the Ark of the Covenant into a storage facility, but it's much brighter and it has (laughs) lots of cool things in it, just like that other place does. So, this room was specially constructed to house natural history collections, and we have a variety of types of collections in here. We have insects, we have plants, and we have vertebrates, and we have parasites, and they're prepared in a bunch of different ways. We have pinned insects, pressed plants, study skins for vertebrates, and microscope slides for parasites. And everything is in special cabinets, and the insects have a double layer of protection. The cabinets are designed to keep out light and pests, and the room is temperature and humidity controlled. What are we looking at here? These are very tiny. These are little parasitic wasps. So these would be things that attack caterpillars or flies things like that. And you can see they're either pinned directly through the body or they're on little points of paper. And the thing that makes it a research collection is that each of these specimens has locality information telling you where and when and by whom it was collected.
2: So how does something get into the collection?
4: Well, a variety of ways. I can go out and collect things. Faculty go out and collect things. This collection was historic in some ways in that it was built up by other faculty members at the university, even prior to my time here. We continually get things in. I get to pick through the students' collections when entomology is taught, and then we occasionally get donations in from private individuals who can't keep their collection anymore. And these are some butterflies. What type of butterflies? These are, these? are morning cloak butterflies. So it's all the same species in yes, this? Yes, this is all the same species. And we keep multiple representatives of each individual, so it's not really like a stamp collection where you have one of each because people who decide how to name species and if something is a new species need to compare variation, and they need to sort out the variation that occurs between the sexes or occurs geographically. Into units that represent a natural biological species. So if you had just one or a couple specimens, you wouldn't be able to do that. So we try to get geographic representation as well as different sexes. Sometimes the two sexes can look very different and you wouldn't even recognize them as the same species. In many cases, they've been described as different species until (laughs) someone comes along and takes a more careful look or observes them carefully in nature. And you can see there's some here that don't have labels on them and those we just keep for instructional purposes. I can show you some of the ones that I work on. Absolutely. So I'm taking you down the aisle now that has the, the true bugs in it. So all bugs are insects, but technically not all insects are bugs. Oh. I have to say that. <laughs> what, what makes a bug a bug? Well, uh, a certain combination of antennae and mouth parts and wings. Those are the, the main things that characterize the largest group, which is the order of insects. So I'll show you some of, of these. These are the seed bugs, and I work on some related to the ones in this drawer. This is a pretty common Connecticut species. It's, it's kind of cute. It's <laughs> got a long neck.
2: Yeah, it is kind of cute. They almost look like ant eaters with the
4: long neck. And in the tropics, their necks get even longer. These feed on seeds, so they have the, the potential to impact plant reproduction and plant dispersal. But you can see they're they're kind of small. I've named a couple of species. How um, does that happen? Well, first you have to recognize it as a new species, which involves a careful study and comparison of other specimens in the collection, and then you can narrow it down and use all kinds of evidence. You can even use genetic evidence, DNA. So here's some things with bright red labels on them, which means they're the type specimens. Here's the one that I described. And as far as I know, I I only had two specimens when I described it. People always ask me what my favorite insect is, and i it's hard, but if I'm, if I'm really pressed, I'll, I'll probably pick this one because I, I got to name it, but I also collected it. Museum scientists often name things that are in the collection that other people collected, but this this one I was able to collect. in well, Ecuador, and, and, you, you got that you know, one? That's named after my former major advisor okay. who described the genus, and then I recognized that it was a species in that genus, but I, I knew all the other species in that genus, and I knew it wasn't one of them, so I named it after him. Paradema slateri.
2: What do scientists do with what's here in the collections? Well,
4: they look at these specimens to determine the ranges of species, to describe new species, to come up with evolutionary scenarios for the relationship between the different types of insects and how they've changed over time.
2: Do we have a large collection
4: compared to now? No, no, but just the fact that we have a collection is, is special. A lot of places... Have gotten rid of their collections as quote-unquote modern biology has taken over. Not that there's anything wrong with that. The techniques that they can use to understand different systems are fantastic, but also those new techniques can in a lot of ways be used on these specimens too. And people get further and further away from organisms. And to understand an organism in its environment is a is a whole different thing than to try to understand the the workings of of a cell. These specimens have an awful lot to tell us. Uh, The new genetic techniques that are coming out, you can do micro-CT scans and look at these things in three dimensions without having to dissect them. So we keep specimens because new tools are constantly being invented, new ways of understanding them. We tell students all the time that every specimen has a story to tell. We just have to be smart enough to figure out how to get that story out from the specimen. And then when you think that each species interacts with other species, probably the best example of that is the army ant guest collection that we're working on now, where, where one species of army ant is essential for the existence of hundreds of other species, you start to appreciate the uh, interrelationships of, of nature. And the other thing I think that re- is really important is you see these things in three dimensions. Yeah. You immediately get a sense of size and shape. And you just don't get that from an electronic device, where everything is two-dimensional, everything's bright colors, everything's the same size, essentially, and you lose something there. It it separates you a a little bit further from the organism. Part of what we teach in the Introduction to Natural History Collections course is threats to collections. Mm -hmm. And this whole facility was designed, basically, to minimize threats, just like an art museum has certain characteristics to preserve art. Uh, we we applied the standards for natural history collections to this building. These are the organisms that share the planet with us. Natural history collections preserve our natural heritage. I think people relate a little easier to things that preserve our cultural heritage, Mm -hmm. like art museums and libraries, and this is analogous to that in the broad sense. It's our relationship to the natural world, which is becoming more and more tenuous Mm -hmm. as as time goes on.
2: The last thing I wanted to ask you is how you came to study bugs.
4: I knew I liked biology, but in my generation you you became a nurse or maybe you became a doctor and there weren't that many role models out there for people who wanted to do this kind of work and I didn't even know I wanted to do this kind of work. We didn't make collections in grammar school like they do now. They often say, oh you know, go out and make an insect collection. No, I wasn't a childhood entomologist. I took entomology in college I was sitting in a lecture hall next to somebody, and we were talking about what courses we were going to sign up for next semester. And it was between comparative vertebrate anatomy and entomology. And I think he took comparative anatomy, and I took entomology. And then, that summer, I didn't want to go home and work in the gun factory again. So I went around and I knocked on every professor's door, and an entomologist on the faculty, Slater, who ended up being my major advisor in grad school, because I was here as an undergraduate as well, said, well, yeah, I have money. Have you had entomology? (laughs) And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have. I just (laughs) took it. So I went to work for him for a couple summers, and then I started grad school. I thought, well, you know, this is kind of fun, because I was doing the same kind of thing for him on a much smaller scale with his collection. And I thought, well, you know, if he could do it, I could do it. I, I was going to stop at a master's degree, but then I kept going, and I got my job here as a graduate student. So I've never left.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I left very briefly and came back. So <laughs>
4: well, I don't know. I think I think people now have bigger aspirations. Yeah, and... this is pretty cool. I don't oh know. yeah, <laughs> I still pinch myself every time I come to work. It's like I pretty amazing. We, we had a small, tiny room. and. Now we have this, and and it's fun when I when I bring people who have never seen a collection in, and they walk into that dry room, and sometimes their jaw
2: literally. Mm-hmm. Drops. <laughs> Jane told me that while she is retiring, she'll still be doing the fun stuff that she loves to do every day. She's going to get back to her research. She may even volunteer to help with the collections here. And she has her own collections. Her and her partner both have collections in their barn on their property. So she's going to work with those. And if you can't make it to stores to get into those collections, you can go to biodiversity.ukon.edu And they've actually digitized many of the collections. So you can scroll through and click on things and see slides. And it's pretty amazing.
1: That's great. And if you get to the the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry mm-hmm. you can see the ant you puppet arts collection that was put together by John Bell and artists from around the world creating insects and ants as puppets.
2: Lots of collaboration. Yeah, the Ant you exhibit, there's some stuff in the biophysics building that you can see about that collection. And then she said there's a really neat exhibit that DMD students helped them put together, right. which they're looking for a new location for right now.
0: There's also an exhibit, I think the formal launch is January, but it's going to be up at the end of December at Homer Babbage Library featuring uh, treehoppers, which is very mm-hmm. Interesting kind of bug. I think that's the right name. Tree. I was thinking head hopper, but that's very different. I don't know what that is. Okay, <laughs> Ken, knows it. Ken knows. who had a hopper is.
1: Gossip this from the old days of print. Oh, yeah. okay.
0: but I was seriously like in my mind it was like head hopper. Head no. I think it's tree, tree hoppers. hoppers. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're very interesting. So all right. So now it's time to visit. Uh, it's winter time. Hmm. Uh, a
2: cozy corner.
0: A cozy corner. No, you know what? Actually, a brisk, refreshing oh. history corner out in the in the great outdoors. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, are any of you skiers? Do you ski? I am. You really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never skied in my life.
1: Really? But, no, no, I saw no good thing could happen to me sliding down a mountain on two sticks. It's probably just true. Not, not a good thing for me. That's a good.
0: That, that's fair. But uh, I'm sure most people know we do have men's and women's ski clubs mm-hmm. at UConn. They're both very good. They both, in the last decade, they've been uh, constantly going to the national finals of their respective club sports. Um, Um, But, unfortunately, the nearest hill for them to practice on is in Southington, which is...
2: That's where I grew up. I grew up skiing at Mount Southington.
0: It's it's an hour away from campus. Yes. But that was not always the case.
2: And it's not a great hill.
0: Well, uh, (laughs) from... 1967 to 1978, our ski teams, because in the 1970s, it was a Division One sport. Oh, my gosh. wasn't a club. Uh, could practice right here at Horse Barn Hill. Part of Horse Barn Hill in the back, it's sort of a remote part. And to this day, there are still remnants. I've seen them. Of the ski tow. The stanchions for the rope pulls could still be found. The best time to go and look for them is, um, I guess, maybe the fall or the early spring, because once the summer's there, they get pretty well covered by mm-hmm. the brush. But if you go back there, it's still a neat place, and you can see where the ski runs were. Um, it was called... Husky Hill informally.
2: Very creative.
0: It was free for students but the general public had to pay a buck to ski. Uh, it opened on February 7th 1967 and it closed in 1978 uh, partly because of fewer and fewer days in the winter when there was enough snow to ski. In the 78 season there were only four days when it was did open.
2: Did they have snowmakers?
0: They did not. There was no snowmaking. Was very
2: but, low budget operation.
0: But there were lights so you could ski at night. Cool. So I read uh, there's some actually some neat reminiscences online from people who went skiing there uh, and uh, talked about it in the history of the ski program which started as a division one sport in the 70s because of Nine. Uh, and then in the 1980s, along with the um, rowing and equestrian teams, became club sport because of funding problems, ever-present funding problems. But you know what I couldn't find any information about? What? The skito that existed there before 1967.
2: <gasps> Always a mystery.
0: Always a mystery. So I've got a headline here it's from the Connecticut campus, not yet the daily campus, uh, January 11th, 1949. And the headline is, Hey, look, there's a skito on Horse Barn Hill. That's a great headline. More headlines should start with Hey, look. Yeah. Hey, look, impeachment proceedings have begun on Capitol Hill. <laughs> hey, look, we're at war. Yes. <laughs> the, the story goes on to say it's not beautiful, it's not elaborate, it's no Sun Valley, but by glory, it's a skito. It works and it belongs to us. So this goes on to describe the founding of the skito, which was run by the athletics department. <laughs> uh, and it talks about how they were going to put in lighting, and they were going to put in a warming hut. The warming hut, the remains of the warming hut, were there as recently as ten years ago, but I think it's pretty much gone by now. Uh, it was a wooden building, and if there's no like maintenance in a wooden building in the woods in New England, <laughs> it doesn't last long. Uh, and it's it it had not opened. Yet, according to the story, again, January 11, 1949, said the first four-inch snow will mark the official opening and will operate from 1 p.m. until 5 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, which seems like a very limited amount of time to ski. But, you know, <laughs> who knows? They also created uh, – George Wenger, vice president of the ski club, organized a ski patrol to handle any trouble or incidents, and they were collecting money to uh, put in lights. I'm going
2: to start a petition and bring it back.
0: That's not a bad idea. Go for
2: a quick ski after work.
0: Be what great. I, what I can't find – Is what happened between 1949 and 1967? Because we have pictures of uh, Homer Babbage surveying where they were going to put the mosquito in 66. And our official university perspective, when you go online and you look in the archives in the advance, it's that the ski existed from 67 to 78. No mention of the ski toe.
2: Is this the same place? I don't know. Place?
0: I think it is. I think the way it describes it, its location on Horse Barn Hill, the northeast part of Horsebarn Barn Hill. Hmm. And uh, it said that there was only one lift. There was a, a place for beginners. There are several natural rock and earth sections on the hill for jumping and also an intersection leading to a higher division for more advanced skiers. Sounds like a
2: lot of liability involved.
0: Yeah, well, there's a 40s. Back then. That's true. There were no lawsuits. Free for all. <laughs> um,
1: there is a story in the works about the current ski team because Peter Moranis, our university yes. photographer, is he's going
0: out to one of their competitions. Going out. He's going he's to... Um, an
2: avid skier an himself. An avid skier
0: himself. Uh, so, yeah. So, there's a mystery. I'll try to find out what happened to the ski toe because it looked like Pretty it was... Cool built and ready and then what went on who knows I don't know but if it's if there's been two skitoes, there could be another one in the future the Let's more I say the word skito, it sounds really <laughs> weak. yeah like I'm abbreviating mosquito in a very strange <laughs> way yes uh, I
2: like it
1: well, we don't know who lives in Tom's history corner sometimes no it's true yeah it's
0: Fold very true.
2: mosquitoes it's very dirty in there
0: <laughs> all right well listen uh, we're gonna wrap this up this was good this was a humdinger I don't care what Julie it was says. a humdinger um, I just
2: I'm um, like are there other words you can think of for that ding hummer humdinger
0: hum,
2: I um, rattle off some synonyms you this was a Let's
1: lullapalooza go. there
2: you go how about that great Maxine you're too quiet this episode I have nothing to say
1: <laughs> she's got homework to do yeah that's true
0: you can you can find us uh, at UConn Podcast and hopefully when Twitter purges inactive accounts you'll be able to yes. find us at UConn 360
2: we're taking it back
0: some lousy domain name squatters had it since 2014 and has done nothing so uh, hopefully we're going to be able to snipe Your that account. will come. But until then, until that glorious day arrives at UConn Podcast, or you can follow me, I don't know why you would, uh, at TJ Breen. Maxine, what do you want the good people to know?
2: You can follow me on Twitter at Maxine Philavong. I will not be tweeting until the end of finals. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. You're very good, yeah. funny on Twitter. You are though. very funny.
0: Maxine's at Quality Follow on Twitter. She is. Thank you. Thank you. Julie?
2: I met Julie Bartuka. If you missed last episode, uh, the Yukon Today version of the American Girls podcast story is up. It's a little different than the audio version, and there's a little bonus content if you go to edu. It's
0: really good. That was a fun story. It was fun. Ken, you've got, you actually have something to tell us about.
1: Yeah, we do a <laughs> Oh, <my gosh. laughs>
0: Well, I meant sort of more like, you know, he always just says, like, Yukon Today, the yeah, radio, yeah, you yeah. Know? so there's, well, new, well, there's new Ken content.
2: Oh, so it was an insult to Ken. Not yeah, just, I was insulting gotcha. Ken, not the okay. rest of us. <laughs>
1: I feel like Rodney did <laughs> We we need to shout out to editor Lisa Steppack and art director Krista Jung Jung
2: It's just pronounced Jung yeah oh, I'm sorry
1: <laughs> Sorry it's fine <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Nano Cataplexis <laughs> about Yukon Magazine. There's a story about Christopher Fizzano, a 2004 Yukon alum, who earlier this year was named president of Burger King Corporation and all those impossible Whopper commercials that you're seeing. He rolled that whole thing out. And it's uh, gotten more attention on social media than almost anything they've done, according to what he tells us in the magazine. And you can go to magazine.uconn.edu and also find stories about the Funky Dogs Brass Band, the geological history of Horseborn Hill, the second Horseborn Hill reference today. And how an alum who is a former IT specialist is working on improving the Connecticut DMV. A big challenge. Yeah. And for me, you find me on UConn Today.
2: Excellent.
0: Definitely check out UConn Today now that I'm editing. It. No, I'm just kidding. Always check out UConn Today. And uh, we're also on WHUS every Friday at 11. That We are. Well, thanks, everyone. Please take our Twitter poll about whether I'm saying the word "humdinger" too often. We'll have the results next time.